No? It's okay. It's a very famous story, a very well-known story, and a story which has been misapplied over the years. This story is not about overcoming our giants, overcoming the big obstacles in our life. Stories, in that sense, not centred on us. We are in the story, as David is in the story. The story is about God and about honouring him and defending his reputation, standing up for him, regardless of who it is, regardless of how, how seemingly overwhelming the opposition is, it's still taking a stand for God. And it's about his honour, his reputation, his glory. That's what this chapter is about. And there are marvellous indications of our coming Redeemer in it. So let me pray and then I'm going to read the introduction. There's a very long introduction in this chapter and the point of it is like in the bottom third of it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunities we have as a free people to be able to follow Jesus, to read his word, to fellowship with his saints, to be able to share the gospel with those who are still outside the kingdom. We have an amazing freedom Forgive us, Lord, and deliver us from taking this freedom for granted and for letting that lull us into a false sense of security that there is always time later. Help us to be urgent and focused, particularly upon you and the honour of your name. And help us, like David, regardless of the risk, to stand for you. We pray that you would speak to us this morning through this chapter, enlighten us, shape us, take the barnacles off our souls and spirits and help us to be passionate, fully devoted to following and obeying you. We ask, Lord, your blessing in Jesus' name. Everybody said? In the introduction there is like the location. So let's read the first three verses. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Serco in Judah. Here they come again. And this time into Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim, the border of blood. Philistines had come on numerous occasions throughout the generations and here they are again, where much blood had already been shed. But this time they are located in the valley of Elah between Soko and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with a valley between them. Picture, if you can, the land of Israel, and down the bottom part of that, uh, the Dead Sea, and beside that is the city of Jerusalem. And if you drop down about six miles, 10k, you'll come to the little town of Bethlehem. That's where David's from. And then head west. I'm looking at the map from my perspective, head west. Um, we're about 20 k's or so from Bethlehem at about the same latitude. You'll come to this valley, this very large valley. It's about one and a half kilometres wide and it in fact runs from there all the way towards the Mediterranean Sea. Well, on either side of this, these two armies are lined up. The Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other. They're about 20 k's, as I said, from Bethlehem. 
verse 4. That's the location. Now we're going to meet two men, the two main characters in the story. We're going to meet Goliath and we're also going to meet David. Let's meet Goliath. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. How tall is nine feet? He's six cubits and a span, the Bible says. Different texts have slightly different things because it's like incredible. He's up here, nearly as tall as that. A little bit, 30 centimetres from the top of there is how tall he is. And he's wide and his knuckles drag on the ground. (laughs) He's got a big hairy chest and he looks like he's a hockey goalie. He's covered in armour from head to toe and he's got a big stick just like a hockey goalie. If you get that image of him, you won't be too far wrong. He's got a hockey helmet on his head, verse 5 says, made of bronze. He wore a coat of scale armour of bronze and it weighed 5,000 shekels, 125 pounds, 57 kilos. My weight. (laughs) Did you not hear that? The Lord bless this side of the world. Oh, all right, that side of me is 57 kilos. Warren's not too far wrong. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a scale of armour, bronze weighing that much. On his legs he wore brass, bronze greaves, like shin pads. And he also had a bronze javelin on his back. His spear, so he's also got a spear shaft, was like a weaver's rod, long, but thick. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about seven kilos. His shield bearer, poor guy, went ahead of him. Perhaps to the Israelites, you could see this other man carrying his shield. You'd imagine that would be huge. You've got this guy with it hot behind a shield moving it around. To them it's probably like it's on remote control or something, just moving in front of him. Here is this very large, imposing and God-dishonouring individual. Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted so that he can be heard. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? I'm from... It's like, am I not an American? It's a very proud race of people that dominant and growing and expanding. Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? His perception's completely wrong. They're not servants of Saul. They're servants of the living God. But his perspective is one of arrogance and defiance. And then he challenges them. Choose the man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were impressed and depressed, dismayed and terrified. That's the image. That's the picture we have. But here is an individual who is invulnerable, unbeatable, 
were done for. And he's calling for this battle, mano we mano, you know, one on one. Let's do an arm wrestle and whoever wins, we win. We don't have to kill each other. Let's do it this way. You know the end of the story too, don't you? Thank you, sweetheart. They don't. When Goliath gets killed, they run. They don't keep this word at all. They don't keep this promise. It's a deception of the enemy. So we have met Goliath. We know the location. And we've read a little bit about Saul. What do you know about Saul? He's the tallest man in Israel. He's got a helmet and he's got armour too that we'll read about a little bit in a moment. Tallest man in Israel. Everybody's looking at him. Who should go and fight this individual? Well, the tallest one, of course. We elected you king in order that you might go out ahead of us. You're the one supposed to fight this, but Saul has no courage. For 40 days, six weeks almost, he puts up with his taunting from this Philistine, Goliath, and his courage is failing him. Why is that? Well, because of the previous stories. He's been a man who has the position of being king, but his heart's not true to God. He's not obedient to God. He does selective things that appear to be religious, but reality, his heart was not set on honouring God. And he, along with the other Israelites, are simply tolerating this dishonouring of the Lord's name. So now, let's switch scenes. Let's meet the second character. And the question is left hanging. Is there no one who can deliver Israel from this shame, who can defend the Lord's honour? Well, God could do it himself, and he will. But God often and usually works with people through people, not in their human strength, but in him empowering them and using them. That's his ordained means most often. Verse 12. Now David, the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem. God's deliverer comes from Bethlehem. We know that truth in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. We'll meet these guys again. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So David's travelling this 20 k's from the valley of Elah, back home again to look after the sheep and then back again to see his brothers and then back again. He's somehow involved and for six weeks hasn't heard what he is about to hear. Verse 16 tells us, For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now this is what Jesse says, In the ordinary, casual circumstances of life, God is at work. Jesse says to his son David, take this little bit of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take along with you these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring some assurance from them. He tells him where he is. There with Saul, the men of Israel, in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David the anointed king, by the way, of Israel, secretly by Samuel last week, filled with the Spirit of God, still looking after sheep, now sent by his father 
Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as his father had directed him. He reached the camp as the army was going out to battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were lining up their lines facing each other. David left these things with the keeper of the supplies, ran into the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out of his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. I suppose we would all run too. Now the Israelites had been saying, and David overhears this, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. That could be a good thing or not, couldn't it? I mean, she might be ugly. We don't know. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. So here is Saul, the tallest guy, not willing to go do it, but he's willing to motivate somebody, please go do something. And David, having heard that, he asked the man standing him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? So say it again. And then notice his attitude. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies armies of the living God? Is David more aware spiritually that there is not just the army of Israel but there are the armies of Israel? Like Elijah the prophet who prays for his servant Lord open his eyes and when the Lord does answer that prayer and he opens his eyes he sees the hills and the ridges filled with chariots and angelic warriors. David alluding to that? Is he spiritually aware the armies of Israel? Um, They repeated uh, the story. Uh, This will be what will be done for the man who kills. Goliath. And then the eldest brother, Eliab, older brothers are always doing this, when he heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him. He said, why do you come down here, belittle him? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down here only to watch the battle. David, typical younger kid, says these things. You've heard these words, I'm sure. Now what have I done? Can I even talk? He then turned away to somebody else, brought up the same matter, and gets it confirmed again. David overhears this, the report eventually, David's asking these questions, and these normal, casual, circumstantial coincidences of these conversations, the word spreads to Saul. Somebody is asking about what can be done. Saul sends for David. Well, to make a long story short, uh, Saul comes in and Saul says to him, verse, um, well, David says to him, verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul says, you're not able to go against and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been fighting someone from his youth. He's greatly experienced. David replies to that. 
I might be a boy, but I am not without experience. I've been keeping my father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair of its chinny-chin-chin and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. Saul has a change of heart. Remarkably, I guess he's breathing a sigh of relief. And then he tries to put his armour on him. Now, notice this. I hadn't noticed this before. I always thought David was like a little runt of a kid who came and Saul's putting these big bits of armour on him. It doesn't actually say that. It says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. It seemed to have fitted. The problem was that it didn't fit. I guess it had some sort of adjustment to it. David fastened on the sword and he tried walking around in it and he couldn't. He said, I'm not going to use this. I haven't used it. I'm not familiar with it. It wasn't that it didn't fit. It was more that it was untested and he wasn't going to waste too much time. He had something more important to take care of. So he takes them off. Then note, verse 40. This is all introduction. We haven't got to the point yet. Then he took his staff in his hand shepherd's crook I guess chose five smooth stones from the stream put them in his shepherd's wallet shepherd's bag and with a sling in his hand he went out to meet the Philistine I once had a thousand years ago had an archaeologist come to our church we were planting a church in Minter south west Sydney and this guy I forget his name but he had been to the promised land and he he was an archaeologist as I said and he brought a rock with him. We're meeting in this uh, wooden building, wooden floor, <clears throat> and he had a rock. And it's about two or three inches across. It's not a rock. It's a rock. And he dropped it on the floor. Bang! I've never forgotten that. That'd be, I don't know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. It made an impression on me. And he said, this is probably the size of the rock that we are to think of the five smooth ones that David picked up. Now, there's no way of knowing that. But we ought to think something substantial, certainly. And David, according to International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, when he put that rock two or three centimetres across in, in diameter, sticks it in the sling and swings it around and releases it, it can approach a speed of about 200 kilometres an hour. Well, David picks up how many? Five. Why did he pick up five? Casey missed. Somebody else has pointed out if you read Chronicles, then Goliath has four brothers. That's a bit of a stretch, I think. I got one for Goliath, and I got one for each of you. We're not told why, but he did pick up five. I tend to think it's more he knows his own abilities. He doesn't always hit what he's aiming at. 
who think in supply. You don't want to be mucking around looking for a rock. You want them close and handy when this hockey goalie is coming at you. And so he does. And he steps out onto the field. Still introduction, but we're getting very close to it now. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, the shield moving around by remote control, kept coming closer to David. So they're now approaching each other. He looked David over... And when he saw that he was only a boy, he was ruddy, nice red cheeks, and handsome. I'm more like David than I realised. And it says, and Goliath despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? Did you come to me with a stick under his staff? You're going to chase me away like a dog? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'll deal with you. That's the introduction. Here is the point. David's speech is the point. There are 63 words in the Hebrew text about what David is about to say, and that's what we ought to pay attention to. There are 36 words half that, dealing with the battle itself. We are to take note of what David says. That's the focus the author wants us to get in this chapter. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. While it is a physical encounter, the point is it's a spiritual battle dealing with the honour of God's name, his reputation in the world. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David suddenly ran around quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he takes out one of the stones, he swings it around, he lets it go and it hits him between the eyes. He's got a helmet on, don't forget. And hits him right in the forehead. Doesn't kill him. The stone embeds itself into his forehead travelling at 200 kilometres an hour. Rough. He fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and without a sword in his hand he struck the Philistine and then it says and killed him. David ran, stood over him. He took the toll of the Philistine's sword, draws that out, jolly big thing. He drew it from its scabbard and then he killed him. He cut off his head I guess the helmet has fallen off by now. And then David reaches down, grabs him by the hair and holds up the head. Can you see it? And the Philistines panicked that their champion, the defier of God, defeated by a runt, by a boy, by a little 
nobody. When the Philistines saw the hero was dead, they turned and ran. That wasn't the deal. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, pursued the Philistines, and there was a great slaughter that day. When they returned, <coughs> they plundered their camps where they had been. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He didn't put it down. He's carrying Goliath's head around with him wherever he's going. They're brutal days, aren't they? Certainly a trophy. And he takes Saul's weapons and he puts them in a particular place which will re-emerge in the story as we work our way through Samuel. Here is this giant of a man, <coughs> defiant of the living God, dishonouring God, and here is God's deliverer who comes from Bethlehem, who was sent by his father, who um, approaches his own, his brothers, but is initially rejected by them. Interesting parallels, aren't they? And it's David, God's anointed one from Bethlehem, who was Israel's deliverer, who came against a great enemy and defeats him in the name of the Lord. There are these amazing parallels. David is an individual, as you'll see from his speech, that he is very God-centred. This is the point for us. He seems to be a young man who has a very real, deep, personal relationship with God. He knows God. When he's out in those sheep fields looking after the sheep and chasing lions and bears and practising with a sling and doing all those sorts of things, he has encountered God. He's the psalmist. I don't know how they know it, but some commentators suggest that David has already written some of the psalms, that he's composed them. They say things like Psalm 8. <clears throat> you made us a little lower than yourself. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? God cares, David was aware, for him. Or Psalm 19, which talks about the law of God, the heavens declaring the glory of God and the firmament showing his handiwork and God's word being that which inspires and directs our steps. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Or Psalm 29, which talks about uh, the thunderstorms. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Glory is due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. Here is David who is this, in the words of one commentator, a God-saturated individual. Israel and Saul saw Goliath and they saw he's invulnerable. We can't do it. David looked at Goliath and he simply saw an uncircumcised braggart. An arrogant God-defier. His perception was that because he was God-centred, god focused. That's one of the points that we, like David, need to be like that. John Davis in his commentary says these words. What do you think of this? The tragedy is, he writes, that were someone to work with us, relate with us, if someone could read our minds, know us deeply, that in times of stress, trouble or danger, they would never guess that we had a living God part of our life. What do you think of that? John Davis's comment. The tragedy is that with someone to 
get very close to us, hear our words, know our thoughts in times of stress, trouble or danger. They would never guess that we knew the living God, that we had God as part of our life. It's not our natural response like the African-American lady, grandmother, when asked why she was never anxious and why she always slept so well, she said, because I, whenever something happens, my attitude is I must tell the Lord. And she does. She tells him and hands it over. Is this an area that's worth examining for us? Is this an area that we need to repent of? Uh, change our priorities. David was somebody who was sold out completely to God. This is a spiritual battle. What sort of a person does God use to win spiritual battles? God uses spiritual people. People who are in tune with him. David was certainly that. As I've already indicated, he, he got to know God personally because he spent a lot of time alone with the sheep, out in the wilderness, but with God composer of those psalms. He'd come to know God deeply and the Lord Jesus says exactly the same thing to his followers. That go into your room, close the door, speak to your father in secret, solitude, get alone with God, get to know God, be God-centred so that God is permeating every aspect of our life. What we watch, where we go, what we buy, what we say, how we think, every aspect of our life under his rule. Well, David was not only knowing God because he spent time alone with God, he was faithful as an individual and he was humble. He was faithful. He was only a shepherd. Only a shepherd. But he was a good one. And he delivered whenever the sheep were taken, he went and fought for them. It was modest work. But God was using those circumstances, those experiences in his life to prepare him. No experience in the kingdom of God is ever wasted. Whatever you are doing, Colossians 3 says to us, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. Give it your best shot. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher you can be. If you're a doctor, a nurse, a mechanic or a builder or whatever you are, be the best mum, best dad, be the best you can be at what you're doing. Seek to glorify God where you are now. Be faithful. That's what the Bible says. Faithful in a little, faithful in much. David was faithful as a shepherd, preparing him. What's the best way for me to get prepared for God to use me? Let me do what is my responsibility to the best of my ability. Let me be faithful in it. Not cutting corners working hard, faithfully. But David, I think, was also humble. He had no big ideas about himself, not at this stage anyway. In the words of Stuart Olyot, he was intoxicated with God. Many teens are, and David is a teen. Maybe you were when you were a teen and things have cooled over the years. Maybe this is a point for you to return. Return to being sold out, 100% for God. David certainly was. No idea, big ideas about himself, humble. He was the anointed king of Israel. He was filled with the spirit of God. But here he is still tending sheep. Here he is still obedient to his father. Here he is being attacked by his brothers and not really retaliating 
certainly replying but not retaliating. Humble. Time alone with God, faithful, humble. Simple things. It's God preparing. That's why God chose, I think, David. That's why God used him. Because it wouldn't be David who gets the glory. It'll be him. It'll be the Lord. That's God's agenda, God's purpose. There is a battle going on. It's a spiritual battle. God still uses spiritual people. We need to be those spiritual people. This is, might be the reason why we are losing ground because we are not spiritual enough. We are not godly enough. We are compromising or negotiating or cutting corners. Let me ask you a question for you. What steps are you taking for you to be a godly spiritual person? What things do you practice? What do you do to improve your spiritual life? Can you name it? Can you write it down? If someone asks you that question, could you answer it? And if you're drawing a blank, well, that's an area for you to work on. What can you do to grow spiritually? Read your Bible. Not just read it, study it, listen to God speak to you through it. Talk to God in prayer. All of the basic spiritual disciplines. Worship God in the assembly of his people. Give, serve, witness. Be available. All of these things. Time alone with God. They're the things you can do. Are you doing them? Intoxicated with God. Well... Because David was intoxicated with God, that's what gave him a perspective on this situation. When it, what Israel saw was a, a giant of a man whom they didn't think they could ever beat. What Israel saw when David walked onto the battlefield was a young teenage, a teenager, probably late teens, whatever, who picks up five rocks, encounters the enemy and beats him. What did David see? When David walked onto the battlefield, he saw a man. He saw just a man. You are a mere man. Blooming big one, but a man. And you have defied the living God. And I am here to settle the score. I am here as God's representative. That's us. We are God's representatives as David was on that field. We come, he said, I come in the name of the Lord. God has an account to settle with you and I'm the messenger. That's David's perspective. Why was that his perspective? Because he was saturated, intoxicated with God. He was God-centred. Time alone with God, faithful in the things he was doing, humble, not a big note about himself, just available for God. What do you want me to do? Day by day basis. And God said, I'd like you to do this. That's the mentality we are to possess. We are God's representatives. In your homes, at your workplaces, in your neighbourhoods where you live, you represent the living God. You need to be spiritually in tune. You need to be intoxicated with him. You need to stand for him and do three things. Pray for the people where God has placed you.
pray for your family, pray for your work colleagues, pray for your sporting buddies, pray for your neighbours. Pray. Love them. Demonstrate God's care and love for them. Always be loving towards people. And proclaim. Proclaim God's truth. Not, don't misunderstand me, not persuade them, not prove to them, but rather proclaim to them. There is a place for persuading. There is a place for proving. But our job as God's representative is not to do that. Our job is simply to pray, to love and to proclaim. My suspicion is is that because some of us are not good at persuading or proving, we therefore are not confident to proclaim. We are simply held responsible to tell, to proclaim. God loves homosexual people. True? But God says that two people who are homosexual, who love each other, can't get married. Well, why not? Well, I don't know why not. That's what God says. I'm simply to proclaim it. I'm to proclaim it truthfully, lovingly, but to proclaim it. Not to persuade, not to prove, but to deliver God's truth. We are his representatives, just like David was then. Time is going and I must come to an end. God used David in his weakness. God had prepared him. God used him. Here is the summary. David was a God-centred individual because of time alone, solitude, because he was faithful, because he was humble. What steps are you taking to be God-centred? As you are God-centred, as you become God-centred and remain God-centred, you'll have David's perspective. You'll see the world as God sees it and you'll understand that you are his representatives like David to pray, love and proclaim. So therefore this week, brothers and sisters, let us look for God around you. Look for God at work in the people around you, in your family, at work, in your neighbourhoods and seek to honour his name, join him in his purposes. Pray, love, but proclaim and act accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, out of this familiar story is a clear truth, is that we, like David, represent you and we are to stand for your honour that nothing is more important than this to be your representative salt and light in this world I pray Lord that you might anoint us, fill us with your spirit help us to make choices to develop practices that are going to help us be God centred to fall in love with you and to be deeply in love with you. That we are more concerned with your glory and honour than with anything else. Lord, 
be our Lord and be honoured in us and through us. Enable us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.